Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. On June 13th, Fidelity Investments Canada hosted Focus 2023 Toronto, a day-long live event for advisors featuring insightful insights from Fidelity's portfolio managers and experts. Today's podcast features portfolio manager Patrice Query on session from the event, sitting down with host Glenn Davidson, VP Regional Sales, Ontario. For Canadian investors, Patrice manages Fidelity Global Concentrated Equity Fund and Fidelity International Concentrated Equity Fund. Both funds are concentrated in nature, typically with under 60 holdings. Also, both funds are focused on quality companies that Patrice believes are reasonably priced and that have the potential to exhibit predictable and durable earnings growth. As we'll hear today from Patrice, one main difference in the funds is international concentrated equity excludes North American holdings. Patrice shares his thoughts on the current market environment, reflecting on what we've seen these past few years and what may be ahead for the second half of 2023. Patrice and Glenn also field questions from the live audience, and please note you may hear references to a few slides that were displayed to the room. For more podcasts from Fidelity Canada's Focus 2023 Toronto event, please subscribe as they'll be released in the coming days. Or scroll back a bit on our recently released podcast to find sessions from May's Focus event in Vancouver. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses and commissions are all associated with fund investments. I wanted to ask, Cam talked about your past being an analyst, and, and as you've always heard in our presentations, uh, people that get hired at Fidelity as an analyst then get diversified experience to eventually become a diversified portfolio manager. How did you get the world? <laughs> the great, great question. Good to be here. Um, I think one thing that Fidelity does well, and credit to our CIO for that, um, I, I sometimes use the analogy with like athletes. I, I think we put a lot of focus getting the right athletes on the team, the right investors, but you also need to play in the right position. And that is very true for investing as well. You need to be on a mandate that suits your interests, suits your style, and will basically give you the comfort to invest the way we, we want to and avoid as many mistakes as possible uh, doing that. In my case, I always had a very keen interest in uh, thinking that the broader the universe is, the more opportunities it should bring to building a portfolio that has the best ideas uh, to really express our views as much as possible. Not building a portfolio to say, well, we'll manage that versus an index and there is a lot of sector X, so I need to have some, although I don't love it. Uh, for me, flexibility is the best way to uh, I guess, implement a strategy that I believe in and to be able to do it all across the globe in a truly like very flexible, very active, incredibly differentiated set of products is what I had been hoping for. And thanks to our CIO and the team, 
I have had the opportunity to put that in practice for the past uh, 10 years or so in Global Concentrated. Wow. And it must have been overwhelming, though, to find out that you're responsible for the world. Let's talk. Let's define the two portfolios. So you've got international concentrated equity and global concentrated equity. Yeah. Let's define them. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll just pick on a point you mentioned. I'm not the sole person responsible for the world at Fidelity. So there's tremendous like resources, analysts, PMs focus on different regions, different countries. And I see my role as bringing all of that information very consistent with, with my view and bringing that to the benefit of, of our clients here in Canada. So to define the products, um, first, international means the world X North America. Uh, so it will be mostly Europe, a bit of EM, a bit of Japan. As opposed to global, I can really go anywhere, including Canada and obviously including the U.S., uh, concentrated means about 50 stocks. Uh, so this is what's more or less in the portfolios at all times. And it's meant to be, as I mentioned earlier, like very flexible, very active, and to, to really give me the opportunity to express our best ideas globally. Uh, so in terms of geographies, uh, I can deviate up to 30% versus the benchmarks. Uh, same thing in terms of sectors. And not only I can, but I do. And those will change over time. And the style that's employed, like what I really believe in terms of investment philosophy, I take a longer term view. I think of investing in stocks not as trading pieces of paper and trying to bet is it going to be higher or lower like three months from now. I think in terms of we are buying stakes and businesses. And the value of a business Regardless of what the market does in the short term, the value of a business is its future stream of cash flows over not the next year or two, but over the next 100 or 500 years, hopefully. And when we think along those lines, truly as a business owner, it brings constantly that reality that the markets will fluctuate much more than the fundamental value of these businesses because the markets tend to be emotional, tend to focus over what's happening in the next quarter, the next year or two, and the market tends to extrapolate those situations. So as a result, you can think of a lot of businesses, especially in cyclical sectors, where the value of the stocks will move like through a cycle much more so than the actual quantity of earnings that these companies will generate in perpetuity, which is what we're buying as shareholders. And that led me to being a contrarian investor because I think that as we do all our work with our analysts, like meeting companies, talking to experts, to consultants, we try to identify like what is our best view of that value of the future long, like very long-term stream of cash flow as a company. So this is like the fair value of a business. What, what we should be paying for that business if we were buying it in the optics of owning it forever. And the market will almost always overshoot. When things are good, the market extrapolates like a current very favorable situations and stocks will typically trade above that fair value. And when things are bad, when the cycle is out of favor, when a country is out of favor, a sector, a subsector, when something happens to a specific business and things go the wrong way, if we have conviction that this is not a structural like problem that will just compound over time, but it's more something cyclical that a business will recover from or renormalize, it's a word that I use a lot, 
there's often opportunities presented because the market also overshoots to the downside. And essentially looking at the world, I look at countries, subsectors that have overshot to the downside. We do all the work, we try to understand like, first, like what's the probability of that business renormalizing on the other side of it? What kind of time frame are we potentially looking for? And I don't need a time frame that next week things will change. Mm-hmm. Like we never get that kind of visibility, but we try to make sure that we're not stepping in front of something that could take like many, many years, not to be too early. But the products are there to express those views when there is an area of the market that is out of favor, that the market has overly corrected and where the stocks are trading at meaningful discounts to that fair value. We get very active in those. And we will tilt the portfolio towards those areas in a fairly material way to, so that we see the benefit of that, as opposed to taking a 1% or 2 or 3% position on, on these views. So that's my approach to investing. So you've got the two portfolios. One is ex-North America. Otherwise, same portfolios? There's a huge overlap between the two. So I right. think the decision should be uh, not to buy both, but more do you want a true complement to what is probably the majority or an overweight position to North America in most Canadian investors' portfolio, mm-hmm. if you want to just diversify it a bit away from that, the international fund will do that great. If you want to leave me full flexibility on choosing when do we move in North America, when do we go more so abroad, uh, then go with the global product. And I will do those shifts for you in the background. Mm-hmm. And I'll do it at times where it can be very difficult to convince your clients that, I don't know, let's go back uh, on the onset of the, 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 the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, it was probably a pretty good time to look at Europe because sentiment was so negative. Like questions around like, the energy, uh, like sustainability of Europe with gas supplies from Russia being Mm -hmm. shut down. It created a ton of negativity. In my opinion, the market overshot to the downside. I increased the positions to Europe, especially to Germany, which was more exposed to that. But I know that those are not easy discussions for you to have with your clients to do that when, if you simply read the newspapers, everything is negative. And it's much more complex to bring an argument of, fair value of that company is 100, now it's trading at 60 because the mood is too negative. This is not the kind of granularity you can get into, but this is very much what I do. So I will try to shift you in terms of geographies, while also in terms of sectors, and I will push it even further in terms of investment style. So I will remain contrarian through time, but when growth is cheap for growth, I will be more tilted towards growth stocks. It's not been the case for quite a few years other than a very short period of time last year. Uh, when value is cheap, I will be tilting more towards value. Uh, so yeah, I will move to what is out of favor and increasing the positions and do it in a very high quality way so that we don't take too much risk of having permanent losses of capital if we are too early on our call or if the renormalization is not quite what we would have expected otherwise. I like your psychology of statement optics in, in that by your have that line item that has a lot going on behind the scenes without the advisor making a lot of decisions which may stand out to the client and they may cause concern. So put it all into one portfolio. Yep. What about capitalization? So again, the products are extremely flexible and that includes the market caps as well. Uh, 
The Global Fund, for instance, is benchmarked to the MSCI ACWI. I don't really care that much. I don't spend too much of my day thinking, what is my benchmark? Uh, the ACWI is very large cap, mega cap tilted in, in nature. It's like the S&P 500 of the world. Uh, as opposed to in my case, historically, I've, I'm agnostic to the market cap of the securities we'll be looking at. I just found it more uh, easier to find a very differentiated aspect from a research, either view something that may have been missed by the market when you go down the market cap spectrum. And it's not a small cap fund like my colleagues Connor's, uh, Connor and Chris will be presenting after lunch. Uh, they are really focused on the small cap universe. In my case, I go everywhere. So it, if you split it roughly, it will be about a quarter small cap, a quarter mid cap, a quarter large cap, a quarter mega cap. But that will change over time, purely reflecting what we are seeing in terms of opportunities. I would say right now, uh, I think there are a lot of opportunities in small and mid cap stocks. Uh, we've been into a very mega cap driven market. I think there's a lot of capital that chased those stocks and still does today, to be fair. Um, and it works in a context of like uncertainty and you, the market wants like uncorrelated to economic growth stories. And that's why tech has been working so well and AI recently. But I think if you take a little bit of a step back, um, I think we need to, on one side, be careful of what we're going into in terms of economic outlook. Um, we always put thoughts in everything, including the songs we walk on stage on. I pick danger zone. I think we're going into a bit of a danger zone here. Uh, that said, I think we're also not like years away uh, from needing to think about what happens when the market goes from being focused on the slower economic growth period that we're going into to looking through that on the flip side of it and I think the flip side of it could be pretty powerful because you will get a normal sort of cyclical reacceleration. I can't promise you when. I think it's, I honestly think it's more 2025 story. The market will see that coming like a bit before. I can't make promises on that. But I think you could get like a pretty good resynchronized like upswing out of the US, out of uh, Europe. You'll get China that will sort of continue to reopen. Uh, and a lot of VMs have simply not been doing that well for a period of time. So if we get to a point over the next, call it like year or so, where the market focuses not on the bad stuff that's lying ahead of us, but on the recovery potential, I think small caps will rip in that example uh, because they are very cheap right now in a lot of cases. They tend to be more economically sensitive and the market has been punishing them for that reason. Um, and there's just more operating leverage into a lot of these businesses. So I like the prospects of small caps over like a, the midterm here. I think it's probably one of the, uh, in terms of market cap spectrum, like an underpriced overshot to the downside sort of a capitalization of businesses. Okay, Dr. Doom. So you think you, you <laughs> used danger zone as your song. You think that there could be tough times lying ahead, but you can manipulate, not manipulate, you can adjust capitalization in order to take advantage of where we sit and then reallocate to the correct markets that you think will be the most resilient. Yeah, so a couple things. Like I, My outlook is, is not Dr. Doom. I, okay. I think we are going into a slowdown period. I think the market has been calling for it for over a year now. Like Everyone is calling for a slowdown. That, let's be like crystal clear. That slowdown has not happened yet. 
Like the consumer is spending like there's no tomorrow. Like it's the economy is doing excessively well right now. There's reallocation of that spending like a little bit away from, I don't know, home improvement into like travel as one example among like so many. So there's a lot of reallocation of spending, but spending is really good right now. And to me, it, it is too good. And that's why we have inflation problem. That's why we're at full employment. And there is lags from monetary policy, like impacting the economy. And I think that in all likelihood, the story of the next 12 months is going to be the one where all those rate increases that we've seen will cause the consumer to slow down because the consumer, especially in North America, is overspending right now. Like the excess deposits that were built during COVID are being sort of withdrawn and the relatively good leverage position in terms of like credit card balance or like debt service ratios and all of that, that's where pretty good are ramping back up. So yeah, you have less savings, more debt. And that's at a time where everybody has a job and at a time where everybody is getting pretty big wage increases. So I, I think it's just unsustainable. I think the consumer, again, especially in North America, is overspending and the lag of higher interest rates will continue to increasingly manifest itself over the next year or so. It will cause that to readjust. I, I'm not calling like for a massive downdraft here. I, I think we have the luxury of being in a position where central banks should be able to press, bas- mm-hmm. press back on the gas pedal when it's time to do it, when we've created a bit of slack in the economy by simply like cutting interest rates. Uh, I don't think we have anything too structural in terms of problems behind all of that. So I th- but I think we need to be cognizant that I, I don't think the Fed is yet in a position to start cutting rates and press the gas pedal because if things reaccelerate today, there's no slack mm-hmm. and inflation will come right back in our face. So we need to create that slack and that will create some economic weakness. But I don't think it's going to be a disaster of a downturn. So if we can start finding opportunities that are reflecting like very depressed, like assumptions in a long-term perspective, like when things are going to be at their worst, that's when you'll need to really take action. So what have I done a bit differently over the past like few quarters Mm -hmm. is starting to take a little bit of money out of like a fairly exposed to like what I call quality cyclical stocks in a portfolio for the past couple of years to adding a little bit of defense, having a little bit more cash, and just to have a little bit more firepower to deploy if that scenario comes to fruition over the next year, and to move to economies and sectors that are less at risk of needing to correct. Uh, I think North American consumption probably needs to adjust down a little bit. If you go to Europe, like the consumer has been like much less like overspending than what's the case here. Uh, if you go to China, like things are just reopening now. So the dynamics are different. And there's a lot of sectors where if the consumer is a little bit at the heart of what needs to adjust over the next few years, there's still a fair bit of sectors that have very little to do with that. And I think in general, like the industrial economy is going to be faring relatively well. So that's why I'm more exposed to industrials, for instance, more exposed outside of North America at the moment. Uh, so, yeah, we're always looking for ways to try to, to have a bit of a differentiated view on how we position ourselves versus uh, our macro backdrop. Sounds to me like both of your portfolios are very adaptable. This question uh, came in about, is there more opportunity in the international or U.S.? You said the U.S. still has the consumer to re- feel some more pain. So would you say it's more of the 
international market that's an opportunity for you? Yeah, like if you look at the portfolio construction, I'm 25% or so underweight in the United States, okay. overweight mostly in Europe. Um, so yes, I do think there are better opportunities elsewhere. Part of it is very much like different sector constructions uh, in those indices. The U.S. is very heavy in tech and healthcare, two sectors which have essentially no correlation to the global economic backdrop. Uh, so that's why we're seeing like a lot of money flowing into those areas, plus what's happening on AI, which is a totally different topic. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think from my approach, zooming back, like what are the parts of the market that are trading at a discount to what a normalized profitability environment is? And I am finding more of these in Europe, more of these in Asia um, than I am finding in the US. But don't get me wrong, like we're still finding great opportunities in the US, but maybe not to the scale that the US is now like over like 60% of the world's mm -hmm. market cap. And yeah, I'm not finding 60% of my ideas in the United States at this point. Patrice was at a conference a week or so ago in Paris. And I think when all of us think of conferences, we think of meetings, but maybe some uh, lobster tails and some other more interesting things. That's not what happens when a portfolio manager goes to a conference. Could you tell everybody what happened on your conference in Paris and what you learned from that and what the sentiment was as well? Yep. So, I mean, we can't focus on that one, but we do that. This is our job. Like we spend a ton of time talking to companies, talking to our internal analysts, exchanges with other portfolio managers. Over the past few years, we've been doing too much of that over Zoom, but it worked. Yeah. And now we're just back to doing a more balance. We, we still use Zoom a ton, but meeting in person, reestablishing the connections. Uh, so what have I done? Met 35 companies over that week. Uh, spent time with our research analysts, most of them London-based, London who made the trip as well. And Patrice, if I could, it's at a uh, maybe a conference center or a hotel, and you're cycling through different companies. Yeah. And there's certain access that we are privileged privileged to as well. But it's it's quite a concentrated event, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So we'll be meeting in like a room quite like this one. There's big panel presentation where companies' CEOs would be presenting to an audience, like more or less the size of what you are here and the luxury we have of doing this job at a big organization like Fidelity is we have a little bit of better access. So as opposed to hearing CEOs of companies talking to you the way we are here right now, uh, after uh, those panel presentation, they have like smaller rooms and they will get like a very small set of investors to have more of a one-on-one -on -one discussion. So I spent my week and I spent most of my weeks in these kind of discussions. Yeah. And it gives us a pretty good feel of where their thinking is and the mosaic of like meeting one company may not tell us all that much, but meeting 30 companies start to give us a better idea of what's happening right now, what's on their mind. So to bring it back to last week, uh, one thing that I think is interesting is it was incredibly well attended by investors. Uh, so I think the sentiment towards Europe is starting to improve to some degree. It's been a really tough period for the past couple of years with COVID, with the war in Ukraine, with like hyperinflation tied to the energy crisis. I think all of that is starting to look a lot better. Like energy prices are back, not quite too normal, but almost given where they went. Like for, for good or bad reason, we can debate that. But what's happening in Ukraine is not much of a talking point anymore. So we sort of moved past that. Could be a danger to watch, but uh, for the moment, like it's improved sentiment. 
I think in general, like the market and investors and even companies to some extent that for the past year have been worried about just demand like falling off a cliff, yeah. it's just not happening or not happening yet. And I think some are starting to think like maybe it doesn't happen, which will be a risk like if sentiment like goes there. But I think sentiment was in general positive. And I'll add like one, one more note on like last week just to give a different perspective. I think we're not the only investors that talk to companies and go to conferences. But we have special access. And like one example of a special access I had last week is uh, I was part of a small group of other like representative of very large investors globally uh, and bunch of companies, CEOs. And we met with the chief of staff of, uh, the, of, of Macron, of, of the French government. And for a couple hours, we were basically brief on what is the government trying to do, the policies they're trying to put in place, the objective they have, and asking for feedback as like large investors. Uh, so this is also neat and something that clearly like not everyone has, has access to. So there's always an element of, I would say, 80% of our time is spent like really focusing on like the companies, like what's that fair value, what are the prospects for profitability, what's happening right now. There's probably 20% of our time, which is more spent like thinking like more macro, like what's happening on an economic, like geopolitics uh, perspective. And last week was, I guess, a good representation of that. Wow. And what's going on in Toronto other than this conference? Believe it or not, there's other things happening. And you said there was an investment conference happening right here, right now. So like this morning, I met with like three U.S. companies uh, mm -hmm. as part of a much smaller conference in that case. Mm -hmm. But uh, and right after this, I'm going back and meeting with three more. And this, but this is what we do on an right. everyday basis. Right. Uh, meeting a lot of companies, building our knowledge, talking to analysts, reading the research, and yeah, trying to bring the best ideas, trying to gain an edge here and there, and trying to find businesses that fit with what we're trying to put in a portfolio. It's constantly revising that because I have 50 stocks in the portfolio but there are 15,000 publicly listed companies across the globe. So I always challenge myself to, there's gotta be something better out there mm -hmm. than what I have. And most of my days are spent, yes, tracking what's in the portfolio, making sure the thesis and the developments are on track, uh, but constantly looking for something that could replace it, that would either be like more discounted or where maybe there's some like perspective that are potentially changing sooner than something in the portfolio and just constantly revisiting. I remember about a decade ago hanging out with you in Ottawa. You were doing some road days for us and some presentations at Delorier, I think it was. And we were talking about you had just gotten this opportunity to run this, these portfolios and you were establishing contact with even more so with the investment teams around the world. And then you were going to jump on a plane and start doing all these different meetings in Tokyo and London and so on so that you could establish with them who you are, what you're all about, and what they should be funneling to you. Yep. How do you digest all of this information? You have 50 stocks, you're here in Toronto, you're going to conferences, you're seeing companies, and you've got an amazing amount of information coming through from all the investment professionals around the world. How do you deal with that? Yeah, without a doubt, that's the biggest challenge. Uh, it's also the biggest luxury, I would put it this way, uh, to have too many opportunities should allow us to find a pretty good one, even if it's not the absolute best. Uh, but yeah, what do I do? Uh, to give you a little bit of background on how research is structured within Fidelity, we have a ton of like amazing, like super smart, talented analysts across the globe. But Fidelity is structured where the analysts don't work for one or two portfolio managers. The analysts are there and work for every PM in their local office, but also every PM who may have interest in their coverage 
anywhere across the globe. Mm. Uh, and being based here in Toronto, but covering the globe, uh, I need to keep reminding these analysts of what am I looking for? So that within their coverage, they can pitch the best growth idea to a growth PM, the best value or dividend stock to the value or dividend PM, and the best, most out of favor, dislocated security to a portfolio manager like myself. Mm. Uh, so there's that constant, like, yeah, uh, making sure that we stay in front of the analyst. And honestly, I don't have the time to read all of their research. Like, we publish, like, hundreds and hundreds of research notes. We just have, we're bombarded with information every day. So every once in a while is to go see them or go on a call and just remind me what are your best ideas. And we have tons of tools to do that internally. Uh, the analysts have model portfolios where they express their best ideas. Obviously, every stock is strong buy or buy or sell or strong sell rated. Um, but it's also to when we meet companies, like to exchange with the analysts, what did you make out of that? What, what did I potentially miss? And there's a lot of like exchange of information, which uh, is taking place. And it's just part of the process. But if I'm 100% candid, my goal is not to find the 50 best performing stocks in the world next year. My goal is to find the 50 that suits best my style and where I will have the confidence to put them in a portfolio. And if it doesn't work in my favor right away, to add to those positions. Uh, so yeah, I'm looking for stocks where I can get the confidence behind the story. And I'm happy to go through examples if that's something. Of interest. Why don't we look at your top 10? So come, uh, come up with some names that uh, might be unique to those of us in the room that yeah. present a good story and follow the thesis you've just talked about. Yeah, sure. So I'll give, uh, I'll give one, I think, very interesting example. There's actually two of these stocks in the top 10 that have playing the same sort of thematic. Let's go back to the aftermath of COVID. And obviously, nobody's traveling. The world is locked. And you can imagine that unless you thought at the time that that was the new normal, the world's going to be locked down forever, the market has massively overreacted to the downside on anything tied to the travel sector. I always get interested by those. And then I approach it like, what's a high quality way so that if we're wrong on either the world never reopening or not reopening as soon as we thought, which, by the way, has been the case. Like It took much longer than we thought in February 2020 for things to reopen. So the, the importance of putting quality stocks led me to not buying like cruise lines or airlines, because if we're wrong, it takes a year or more. Like those companies will get diluted or might not make it through. But I bought like aerospace, commercial aerospace aftermarket suppliers. And that meant a company like GE, and G has been a basket case like, of like unloved story, but at the core of G is an amazing aerospace. Like they are the world's largest manufacturer of jet engines. And it's a fantastic business. Not losing money even when COVID happened, just very predictable because the maintenance needs to be done on those jet engines. Like regardless of the plane is empty or full, it's all regulated. Like you can feel pretty good about that as, as, as travelers. Uh, and the model is those companies don't make money selling the engine. They make money servicing the engine when it's installed and the servicing is regulated. So that was a great way to gain exposure to an eventually reopening travel sector in a very high quality way. I did the same thing in Europe uh, with Airbus. And if I can elaborate a little bit on Airbus, the thesis essentially it was and remains today that they have an extremely long backlog. All the airlines are trying to buy more fuel-efficient airlines. 
uh, airplanes. And the core of like the, 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 the airplanes globally are those narrow bodies. And it's essentially a duopoly. It's the 737 of Boeing and the 320 of Airbus. And Boeing had a bunch of issues with the 737. We all heard about them. So Airbus is just in a great position to increase its market share, ramp up production. And the core of the thesis is as production ramps back up to fulfill like that massive demand, like a 10-year backlog, literally, uh, on these aircraft, the incremental profitability on building an additional airplane is very high because a huge part of the cost is all the R&D and the development process that goes into it. Once it's there and you ramp the additional like volume of production, it flows in at, like I won't disclose like our internal like estimates that are more optimistic than most, but uh, it flows in at very good incremental margins on a business that in aggregate is at the lower margin profile. And I always tell our analysts something that I do like very much as an investor is spend less time trying to predict revenues. Everybody tries to do that. Spend more time trying to predict margins. And a lot of the best performing stocks, like historically, are some of these companies that take margins from fairly low level to much higher level. And when you find a company where you have the visibility that gives you the confidence that this could very well happen is something that I get very excited about. And Airbus would be an example of, of that. I could talk about every stock in the portfolio and that. I'm afraid we don't have the time. I want you to talk about Mexican banks. Sure, yeah. Uh, another great example. So I own uh, a bank in a portfolio in the top 10, it's called BBVA. Uh, it's a Spanish bank. So you can imagine the sentiment around European banks for the past 10 years, up until like maybe six or nine months ago, was just terrible. Because if you're a bank, how you make money is by lending at higher rates than you take deposits. And when interest rates turn negative for an extended period of time, like we've seen in Japan, like we've seen in Europe, it becomes incredibly difficult to make money. And when it lasts too long, the market starts to extrapolate. And essentially, we got to a point where the market's view was European banks are uninvestable. They're terrible businesses. They'll never make money. They don't earn their cost of capital. And they never will ever again. So you were buying them on very depressed valuation level on like five times earnings because nobody wanted to touch them. And one thing that's been like absolutely game changer is we've face inflation here, Europe's also facing inflation. It allowed the ECB to move from negative rate territory to where they are now and could very well go higher over the next year. And as a result, the profitability of a lot of European banks has really inflected uh, in a pretty dramatic way over the past uh, year or so. And for BBVA, they were impacted by that. They have a Spanish business. But the core of the profitability comes from they have the number one bank in Mexico, uh, Jeff just said a few words on Mexico. The, the fundamentals for the country are pretty good. This is still an underbank market, so there's a lot of growth opportunities. The returns are still fairly high. Uh, and they're like Citibank uh, owns the number two bank in the country, and they are exiting and just leave like BBVA with Bancomer, like their, their Mexican franchise, just extremely well positioned. If that was listed standalone, it would be a bank probably trading at like. 13, 14 times earnings on like very good ROE, but it's bundled into that like Spanish conglomerate of banking operation and the market is just ignoring that value. And the numbers have been tremendous. So the market cannot ignore it as much as it did. But I think that's one story where perception is very different than reality mm -hmm. and where you have a very important catalyst that took place to change like 
the fundamentals of the business in a pretty big way where it's not fully recognized by the market yet. Interesting. Question came in from the audience on China. Rates have been cut. What do you think of China and emerging markets overall? So China is at the core of a lot of TCs on emerging markets. Um, the reopening has certainly been disappointing in terms of pace and very uneven. And I think we're seeing the results of even prior to COVID, China was slowing down and we had some marked slowdown in the real estate market. And I think we're seeing now that the high-end consumer is doing pretty well. So sales in some categories, especially at the high-end, have rebounded very quickly. But big part of the economy, which is reliant on like the real estate for the, the mass of the population, is still not in a great place. During COVID, obviously, the government couldn't push stimulus measures to accelerate real estate. It would be like pushing on a string. Like The economy was still locked mm -hmm. down up until recently. Now it's reopening. I think the government wanted to realize what is the real state of the economy. And because China didn't have any good reads on economically what's the potential after three years of like constant COVID measures. And I think we're getting at a point now where it is becoming quite clear that the economy is not as strong as they would want it to be driven by real estate. And I think in a way, good news is going to become Sorry, bad news is going to become good news because we will start to see, I expect, uh, more stimulus measures being put in place, trying to restore some confidence in the real estate market. Like we've seen some action taken to complete projects from the developers who went bust, uh, but that doesn't help like the funnel of new orders. Um, and I think that's the next step. And I think that could have some pretty positive implication in terms of sentiment. Because at the moment, I can tell you, uh, the sentiment on the Chinese market and the Chinese economy by the financial markets is, is really weak. Uh, just look at the stocks. Uh, very bargain prices in a lot of cases. Uh, a lot of disappointment around the pace of recovery. Um, and to be fair, a, a lot of investors that have decided to reduce like Chinese exposures for geopolitical like long-term structural reasons. Uh, think of a lot of pension funds in the U.S., for instance. And I think all of that is leading to what is very likely to be like an undershoot of companies' valuation versus their fair value and can create opportunities. So I, I feel relatively confident about China. Um, but I manage it in a way so that it is not too much of an exposure in the portfolio because we need to also keep in the back of our mind that I think there will be a day in the next, who knows, that's... Uh, I won't predict when. I have no idea. I think nobody has an idea. But we need to be very mindful of the Taiwanese situation. Yeah. And if something was to flare up over there, could have very devastating impact to the world economy and China specifically. Uh, so I'm just not comfortable to, like, the way I've made Europe a 30% overweight in the portfolio. I feel good about China. It is small overweight. I'm not in a position where I say, let's make that 30% overweight into the portfolio. You've taken us on a whirlwind tour of the world in 40 minutes. Thank you for that. I think that Thank what you. you've got are two portfolios that are extremely efficient, very concentrated, very interesting as far as the thesis. You're also very loyal to the companies that you buy. As you said, you will buy more if you feel that there's an opportunity if prices go down. If I'm buying my own U.S. or Canadian equities, which I wouldn't do very well, I can go to you for the rest of the world or just buy you for everything. And like you said earlier, you'll move around for us for that one line item. And it's a very efficient way for us to get global exposure with different capitalizations. And I think that universe, it's, it's really uh, quite universal. 
You must just say when you introduce yourself to people, I'm a man of the world. But <laughs> I'm curious on any final thoughts you have for the audience just on the two products that you, you manage. Yeah, I can leave you with more of a macro thought that I don't have absolute conviction, but I think it's quite likely and would have dramatic implication on what the next five or 10 years could look like. And I'll leave you with the thought of the past 10 years have been a decade where global economic growth has been relatively disappointing. We had like deleveraging following the US financial crisis. We had a European financial crisis in 2013. We had a trade war that started in 2018. We had a China that slowed down dramatically, like especially in the, the prior like six or seven years. We had a pandemic, we had a war, we had hyperinflation. So there's been a lot of bad news, which led to a decade where growth has not been great, which led to central banks taking interest rates down to zero in most cases, if we average. And that's been extremely beneficial to a subgroup of US companies that are not correlated to that weak global economic growth and that have benefited from a low cost of capital. If we look ahead for the next five or 10 years, I think, as I mentioned earlier, I, I don't think it's three or six months from now. I think it's very likely that 12 or 18 months from now, we'll be focused on a recovery. And let's hope we get a little bit less bad news uh, than the past decade, but if we get a backdrop of a little bit more supportive global growth, that will totally change the expectations around what's normalized cost of capital and normalized interest rates. We could be into a decade where inflation is a little bit more prevalent. It could be in a decade where we need, where companies, CEOs that had like a CapEx envelope to allocate, and because there was not a great amount of economic growth, they didn't invest in capacity, they invested in efficiency, which really meant technology. Now we're seeing like bottlenecks on so many things as demand came back. Like I think we'll be constrained on commodities, on energy, on like shipping capacity, on manufacturing capacity. There's the investing in our infrastructure, like the energy transition is gonna be like considerable in terms of how much like old economy, like manufacturing footprint, commodity intensive, like investments that will need to take place, which is very different than the past like five or seven years. And if that's the background that we're in for the next five, seven, 10 years, that companies need to manage like bottlenecks of capacity and they move their budget envelope from efficiency to capacity, that means the old economy comes back. And if the old economy comes back to some extent, and I'm not talking structurally, I'm talking like cyclically, but long cycles, that should benefit a lot of companies that are much more present in indices outside of the S&P 500. So if that's the case, especially with the starting point where we are in valuation and expectations and sentiment on those sectors and countries, I think there is a scenario, which I can promise, but the scenario where the rest of the world and the old economy performs better than US tech, essentially, mm -hmm. over the past 10 years, definitely exists. And I think we're more or less there. We already see some pockets of this outperformance. And if that's the case, I would feel pretty good about the portfolios that I'm running right now. Yeah. And uh, maybe a good way to build a little bit of that exposure for clients' portfolios. You're bursting with enthusiasm, so I take back my Dr. Doom comment earlier. Thank <laughs> you, Patrice Kirion, for being here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. 
Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.